Adventures of a Street Musician by Mickey Zeekly. Episode 5. The Dickens, you say? It was my first Dickensian Christmas. Kate Reed and I signed on at the brand new Charles Dickens Christmas Fair in San Francisco. It was put on by Ron and Phyllis Patterson, who were the originators and organizers of the Renaissance Pleasure Fair. And we were there to exhibit and hopefully sell the stained glass trinkets that we made. And we were also hired to play music with the Golden Toad, now in the form of the new Bristol Cayley Band. Bob Thomas saw a picture in an old book, circa 1889, of the original Bristol Cayley Band. So we outfitted ourselves with costumes and instruments to match. Top hats and tails were the order of the day. Bagpipes, clarinet, fiddles, fife, and of course drummers made for a raucous sound. Our first objective was to find lodging in San Francisco for one month while the fair was running. The logical place for a cheap room in those days was Haight-Ashbury. We walked south up Clayton Street from Panhandle Park and found a sign, Room for Rent, No Dog, No Crow, No Horn. Well, we figured that bagpipes weren't a horn and rented it. We didn't realize that the room came with built-in roommates until we turned the kitchen light on in the middle of the night to see the new cockroach wallpaper disappear back into the wall. The Dickens Fair provided many great adventures, many more adventures than there was business. It was as if there was a quarantine sign on the front door of the fair because no one came. Well, the organizers really didn't bother to advertise very well. We all had a great time selling to one another and playing music for ourselves. We enjoyed that even though there wasn't any business. Kate's clothes had reached the stage of being in rags. She desperately needed some new warm clothes for the winter. About a year earlier, we found a Turkish import store and purchased Turkish drums, Dumbeks, hourglass-shaped metal drums that are very pretty and sound great. And we bought them for a very reasonable price. When people from our audiences, when we performed, would ask, where did you get that beautiful drum? We would say, oh, I'd be glad to sell you this one. And we made a lot of money for our meager living, selling these drums off the stage one at a time. And it was time for another drum, so it was off to the import store we went. The shop owner was unpacking a new shipment direct from Turkey including some beautiful white sheepskin shearling coats. Kate instantly fell in love with the coats. I asked Meyer, the shop owner, how much she would sell a coat to one of her very good customers. And she said, well, business had been slow, and that she'd be delighted to sell us a coat for $40. 
What a great deal. Next stop, North Beach to buy Kate a warm blouse. While she was looking at clothes, I noticed the storekeeper admiring her, but actually he was admiring her new sheepskin coat. I struck up a conversation and asked him if he wanted to buy a coat, and I quoted him $80, and he said that he wanted to buy three. One quick trip across town for more coats, and we made $120, a blessing because we were broke. We went back to the import store and bought more coats with our profits and made even more money selling them to our friends at the fair. It was just before Christmas and we started selling the coats on the street in the financial district in the morning before the fair opened. Then disaster struck. Our importer friend ran out of coats. We were very disappointed because we were making, in our minds, a fortune. She showed us some beautiful hand-loomed, hand-embroidered clothing that she'd also brought back from Turkey from Chile by the Black Sea. So we took some of these around to the store that we sold the coats to, and he ordered some of these also. And we took them back to the fair and sold them to our friends and on the street. And the clothing turned out to be even more popular than the coats. Through this chance event, we finally had plenty of money and a new career to boot. months prior to the Dickens Fair, we had Elliot, the Golden Toad's drummer, who Will Spires once said in frustration to, is a barnacle a ship? Is a drummer a musician? And his dancer wife Leslie over for dinner. Kate had baked a beautiful chocolate cake for a party the next day. Elliot sat next to the cake and kept running his fingers through the frosting and licking his fingers. I asked him please to stop many times. He was ruining Kate's beautiful cake. Eventually, my patience ran out, and I picked up the cake and I smashed it into Elliot's face. Elliot said, Zekely, I'll get you some day when you least expect it. We were still performing at the Dickensian Madness and I was in my usual attire of top hat and tails. We had just finished a tune when someone in the band asked if they could see my fife which I was playing, when all of a sudden the world went chocolate cream. There I was, dressed in my best top hat and tails, on stage and covered with quite good chocolate cream pie. Years after the first Dickens Fair, we were having a Golden Toad concert at the beautiful Presbyterian Church in Mendocino, California. We were all encamped at Bill Gilkerson and his wife's name, Shurston, and their place was called Swedish Paradise, an idyllic hideaway in the primeval northwestern redwood rainforest. Lori Stark, Gilkerson's delightful ex-wife, our combination 
belly dancer and opera singer, got up very early the morning of the show and set to work, giggling and making the two most beautiful pies ever created. Both Gilkerson and John Patterson, our ballet dancer, had been a bit hard to deal with for a while and quite miserable company for days. We all felt like burying them in our anthill. It was getting near showtime, and we were next door to the church getting ready when Lori let Bill and John each have a pie in the face. The rest of us got secondary fallout when they threw the pie scraps at us. Joe Moyer, we thought, a very straight woodwind and brass repairman from Santa Rosa, California, had been recruited to play clarinet with the band. Joe lived in a 1930s bungalow with his wife and two children and assorted broken antique cars and tubas. While Joe had halfway run off with the gypsies, us, and was devoting more energy to learning the Bulgarian bagpipe, the Gaida, and playing with the Golden Toad than his normal existence of playing oboe, clarinet, and bassoon with the Santa Rosa Symphony and fixing instruments for people. Joe got a beautiful Gaida, but the goatskin bag had worn out and was leaky, and he decided to make his own new bag in the traditional manner. First he went and slaughtered a goat, and he peeled the skin off the goat, and then he cured the goat hide and rock salt in his grange. This guide had a beautiful carving, a goatskid head on the channer stock, and Joe tied the bag on with the hair on the outside. You usually put the hair on the inside, but he liked the look of it. But he didn't do a good job of curing the hide, and when he played it, it really looked like and stunk like a rancid billy goat under his arm. We all called it Harry Gaida, made by the Park Your Carcass Bagpipe Works. Every year, Joe would go with his wife and kids to Christmas dinner at his in-laws. Inevitably, the father-in-law would ask him, Joe, would you please play us some Christmas music? And Joe would either take out his beautiful 18th century boxwood clarinet or an oboe and play some Mozart or some other Christmas favorites. This year, the whole family was seated around the table for dinner, and the patriarch asked Joe for the traditional music. But this year, Joe took out the love of his life, Harry Gaida. He blew it up and held forth. Joe's sister-in-law, smelled the stench of the dead goat and realized that Joe was blowing into it, complete with its carved head and bleeding sound, and promptly threw up all over the Christmas turkey. When I heard this story, I thought that Joe's domestic life might start to be on shaky ground. Marsha Ricketts was staying with us in Cockroach Heaven for a few days during the Dickens Fair time, and when out of the blue, she said that she wanted to call Joe, who she said she just met, and ask if she could be his apprentice to learn instrument repair. 
and in exchange that he she would cook for him. Well, she used she used her phone to call him and said that to him that she would trade taking care of him and cooking in exchange for learning how to repair instruments. After the phone call, Marcia said that Joe sounded interested. She said jokingly that they would have to get bunk beds. To everyone's surprise, including Marcia's, Joe arrived three hours later with a suitcase in hand and talked Marcia into running off with him. Joe never went back to his wife and family. Many years later, Kate, I, Bob Thomas, Jody Levy, and the notorious Joe and Marcia took a trip to Jody's uh, vacation trailer at Lake Havasu. We stopped for breakfast at a Sambo's restaurant, and Bob asked if he could have his eggs poached, but to make sure that they were not overdone or underdone. Well, Joe turned to us, complaining how picky we were, and then he ordered from the waitress, telling her that he wanted his pancakes to make sure that they were teddy bear brown. On arriving at Jody's dad's sheet metal chalet, we found three bedrooms, two with double beds and one with bunk beds. Remembering Marcia's statement years prior, we made Joe and Marcia take the bunk beds. The Dickens, you say. San Francisco's Christmas shopping season was in full swing, and I was trying to make a living by playing the bagpipes on the street. The Charles Dickens Christmas Fair was being held at the cannery this year. It was a much better year. They advertised and people were coming, and I got hired to be a piper. The gig consisted of playing bagpipes duets with George Dawson, accompanied by Kate Reed on the field drum, while standing on an old horse-drawn style dray wagon in front of the fair right on Fisherman's Wharf to attract a crowd. The pipe music could be heard for at least two city blocks, even with lots of traffic and noise, and then try to get the audience to come into the fair. Well, we approached our performances a little differently than our employers intended. It was a fantastic opportunity for busking. Having our very own stage on Fisherman's Wharf and being paid to panhandle the crowd was an absolute miracle. About the third day of the fair, the proprietor, Ron Patterson, came out front to see how his musical shills were doing. And at the same moment I was trying to convince the crowd to fill our hat with money, I glanced over to my right and saw Ron in his burgundy Dickensian velvet suit and top hat rushing towards us. I instantly realized that the jig was up. The only thing I could think of was to quickly hand Ron the hat before he could say anything to stop us and loudly announced to the crowd of about a hundred people that our friend was going to come around and collect donations. He looked at me in horror. 
then looked at the crowd watching him, shrugged his shoulders, walked around passing our hat. It was obvious that he was very frustrated because we were emptying the crowd's pockets before he got a chance to, and worst of all, he was helping us. A few days later, George showed up for a performance with yet another one of his incredible you-wouldn't-believe-what-happened-to-me tales. This time he supposedly was busking in full Highland regalia near the cable car turnaround at Pollen Market Street in San Francisco when his bagpipe stopped working. His only choice was to head to the local Scottish import store get to get some new reeds. Before he could get through the front door of the shop, a fellow in a fancy dress suit grabbed him by the arm and demanded that George play the pipes for him. Well, George said he couldn't play right now because his reed was broken. The fellow reached into his pocket and came out with a $100 bill, tore it in two, and gave half of it to George and told him to blow up his pipes in the lobby of the Fairmont Hotel on Knob Hill at 10 a.m. the next morning and play the old Scottish tune, The Cock of the North. The fellow then turned around and walked away before George could say a word. Well, George arrived at the Fairmont Hotel promptly at 10 a.m. looking for the man that had accosted him yesterday but the fellow was nowhere in sight. He was quite afraid what might happen to him, but George pulled out his pipes and blew them up. Within 10 seconds, he was descended on by numerous bell captains, desk clerks, and others trying to stop him from playing. But before they could silence the piper, the mysterious gentleman arrived and waved off the hotel staff who disappeared instantly. George played for an hour, then was treated to two orders of Eggs Benedict and handed the other half of the $100 bill. Shortly thereafter, George showed up late at the Dickens Fair with this, yet another one of his unbelievable stories. By the next day, I forgot about George's story, which I felt was yet another figment of George's fertile and amazing imagination. We were once again standing on the wagon trying to convince the crowd to pay the piper when maybe come into the fair but pay us first when a chauffeured limousine pulled up in front of us. Out stepped George's mythical character with a package wrapped in beautiful highland tartan material. He walked directly up to the wagon and handed it to George. Wrapped in the material was a beautiful Brian Beru Keed Highland bagpipe chanter. Evidently, George's benefactor went back to the Scottish shop and asked what the piper wanted for Christmas. The man got back into his limousine and drove off, leaving Kate and I staring at each other in disbelief at George smirking. This podcast is a part of a series, Adventures of a Street Musician, by Mickey Zeekley, 
The music that you've been hearing is from the album Fiona's Folly by Mickey and Elizabeth Zeekley. You can download this album on iTunes, Amazon.com, and CD Baby. You can find out more about Mickey Zeekley and Mickey and Elizabeth's music by going to CelticWeddingMusic.net.